you, John, and praise team for leading us in such a wonderful way into the very throne room and presence of God. And what a, what a beautiful sentiment. I mean, I, just sitting there as we were singing together, thinking about how deeply I am loved, how deeply you are loved. And I guess I, I feel that way um, as a result of, of your encouragement to our family over the last few weeks. I haven't said anything uh, publicly, but I want to I say this. I deeply appreciate your prayers uh, your uh, notes, uh, we got, I got back from uh, being out in California with my mother-in-law and father-in-law and my bro- brother-in-law passed away on uh, the last uh, day of the year and uh, after spending a few more days with them and being back here, I came back and I just got all these wonderful cards and notes and texts and just words of encouragement and, and I couldn't help but think, what do people do who don't have a church family? don't have brothers and sisters to encourage and bless. And I felt the love of God from from you. And and that's what we do with one another. And so I just, uh, I'm deeply uh, grateful for for the way that you uh, responded to us. And I want to say thank you. Seems more and more I I hear about people who are watching online. And so today, if you're a guest, if you're watching online, we're just glad that you've, uh, you've joined us. Um, and, and if you're a guest today in person, we're glad that you've joined us. And we're involved in a message series from that Old Testament book known as Nehemiah. And there's always a, a why or a reason behind message series. And one of the things I like to do as we begin the new year is I like to um, sort of focus on what we're going to be thinking about for the entire year. Uh, typically, elders and ministers get together and we pray and we think and Uh, We ask questions about what will be the focus. And one of the things we're going to be talking about this next year is vision. And it's one of the reasons why um, we're in this message series from the book of Nehemiah. And at some point, we'll have some broader conversations, and we'll ask a lot from you in terms of input. But what what I would like to ask you to do right now is I would like to join, ask you to join with us as we pray. Um, You know, we're we're coming through the pandemic. We're not quite through it yet. I know I hear more and more people who uh, are getting COVID, who had COVID, but, but we're going to come, th- as we come through this, this creates this opportunity for us to ask questions about uh, what's next and for us to think about the future. God, I do believe, has this amazing future for us, and we get to live into that. And so over the next months, we're going to be thinking about that, and I couldn't help but think there's a book in the Bible, the book of Nehemiah, is a wonderful place to start as we think about about vision. There's a question that probably most elders and ministers think about from time to time, and any kind of leader should be thinking about this question, and it's, it's this. What is it that motivates people to work where they work, to volunteer their time to the groups they serve, and to donate money to the causes they support. What is it that motivates us? Maybe a more simple way to ask this question would be this. Just ask it by saying, why do people do what they do? That's a question I've been asking about Nehemiah. If you think about it, Nehemiah took a big risk. We saw this last Sunday. As, as Nehemiah goes and have, has conversation with the king, King Artaxerxes, he was in Susa at this time in Persia. Uh, he was the cupbearer, and when you hear the phrase cupbearer, don't think in terms of he was some low-level servant. Um, 
Nehemiah had a prominent and very powerful, important position. He was Artaxerxes' right-hand person, and he was, he was there. He was a very trusted official. And so he was risking a lot by asking him if he could go and, and leave where he was living at the time and go back to, to where his ancestors were li living and, and help them. And so he asked that question, and amazing, if he could go, and amazingly, Artaxerxes said yes. But you may recall, before he left, um, for months he'd been thinking about going. Nehemiah was, was praying and mourning and fasting, and I wonder, what was it that made him feel that deeply? I mean... He felt passionately about the walls around Jerusalem that were down. And I guess the question we raise initially is, well, what did those walls represent? You see, it represented so much more than just the safety and security of the people. It, it said more than just, I want my people to be safe. Uh, uh, Nehemiah felt deeply for a reason, and, and the reason was it had something to do with God. As long as those gates were, were destroyed, as long as the walls were down, the people could not say what the psalmist says about Jerusalem. We'll put it up on the screen right now. Psalm 48, verse 2, beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the heights of Zephon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. As long as those walls were down, they could not say this. Jerusalem was meant to be beautiful. It was beautiful. It was meant to be the, the joy of the whole earth. You see, Israel was to be the light of the world. What the gates and what the walls represented was a city that was flourishing. Understand, Jerusalem was where the symbolic presence of God dwelt. And as long as those walls were down, it was an affront to a holy God. For Nehemiah, it was not so much about the people's security as it was about God's glory. And so we felt deeply and passionately about this. I think Nehemiah was motivated for the same reasons that another great leader in Scripture was motivated, David. You remember the story in 1 Samuel that the people of God are going to battle against the Philistines and their great leader, Goliath, would come out every day and he would roar. And the Israelites would cower in fear. David's brothers would cower. One day, David, he was a young man. He wasn't even involved in the battle. One day, David went out to be where his brothers were, and he saw Goliath, and he heard Goliath. And you remember what David's response was? David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, what was it that motivated David? It wasn't that the fact that King Saul had said, whoever goes to battle against Goliath and is victorious gets my beautiful daughter to marry. It wasn't that he didn't, uh, didn't, wouldn't have to pay taxes for then on. I mean, that'd be a pretty good motivation for me. It wasn't that uh, he would become wealthy as a result of winning this victory. It wasn't any of that ultimately. Ultimately, what it was, it was about the glory of God. How dare Goliath defy the armies of the living God? And that's why David went into battle. Why do we do the things that we do? 
Oh, there are a lot of motivations, but friends, the highest motivation for us is the glory of God. The truth is, God wants his people to flourish. God wants the church to flourish. But we're not involved in serving and working in the church. We're not involved in these incredible ministries that we do in the community uh, for, for selfish purposes. Oh no, God forbid. We're involved in the things that we do for the glory of God. Oh, certainly it's about helping people, yes. But ultimately, it's about the glory of God. And so today, as we think about how this, this vision that God puts in Nehemiah's heart begins to grow and mature and how that vision ultimately becomes matures to the point of reality and something transpires I want to ask what are some steps involved in that process you know one of the things about preachers I don't really like these preachers that you know give you a bunch of words that all they're they alliterate and they sound alike and they all fit together and all that so I'm, I typically don't like that but this morning I'm gonna give you four words that sound alike and alliterate and all fit together because it just feels to me like you might be able to remember this better that way and so forgive me but that's what we're going to do today so we're in Nehemiah chapter 2 last time we left Nehemiah Nehemiah as I said was standing before the king and he makes this this ask and and so the king amazingly says yes you can leave Persia you can travel the several hundred miles and you can go down to Jerusalem to help them rebuild this wall and in in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 11, as Nehemiah is narrating the story, this is what he says. I went to Jerusalem. Now, we might think at this moment, he finally makes it to Jerusalem. It had been four months. God put this vision on his heart. It began to grow. He prayed. He fasted. He mourned for the people of God. Finally, he gets a conversation with the king. I mean, God orchestrated that conversation. He goes to Jerusalem, and here's what I think would happen next. He gets to Jerusalem, and immediately he begins to put together a team of people. He thinks, I need some wall builders. I need some people who work on masonry. I need some, some folks who know how to, I need some architects. I need some design engineers. I need a lot of people. I mean, I need to immediately pull this group of people together to begin the work. But that's not what he does initially. Notice the next part of the verse. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, now he, he waits three days, he's probably resting, he's traveled 800 miles to Jerusalem. He rests a while, and then notice what happens. I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put on my heart. Notice this vision didn't just come from him. God has put this on his heart. I have not told anyone what God put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. So at this moment we find that Nehemiah does not tell many Jews. He does not tell the nobles. He does not tell the, the, the leaders in Jerusalem. He just gathers a few and at night they go and they take a look at the city. Now what do we learn from this? Here's our first word. It's the word investigate. We need to investigate before we initiate. I know it sounds cheesy, but that's okay. Bear with me. We need to investigate before we initiate. You see, one of the important things for Nehemiah was to see what's involved in the task. And so as he took a ride around the city, he realized it's two and a half miles around. 
He realized that the walls need to be tall and, and the walls need to be wide. It's going to take a lot of volunteers, a lot of folks. It's a daunting task. We need to investigate before we initiate. And so what does this mean for us? Well, here's one thing it means. Maybe God's put a vision on your heart individually. And, and you might be like me. I, I perceive myself as kind of a, an activist. That is, I, I want to do things. Uh, I, I, get, I can get impatient. Uh, I want to I go. I want to do. I want to make things happen. But, you know, sometimes we need to just slow down and investigate. Look to the past a little bit. Ask some questions. Try to ascertain where you are. We can think of this both corporately and individually. Maybe God puts a vision on your heart and, and, and you think, I want to charge right in. I think God, he wants me to be a missionary in, in wherever. Well, maybe he could, but you might want to think about it and pray about it and ask some questions. Maybe there's some training you need to, to do. Maybe, maybe you need to, to, to pass the idea in front of some mature, smart people before you make the decision. We need to investigate before we initiate. I think this is what Jesus had in mind in, in the Gospel of Luke. You may recall what Jesus said. You can put this on the screen right now. We're not going to put it on the screen right now. That's okay. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14 and verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? What was Jesus saying there? Jesus was saying the same thing we see modeled in Nehemiah he investigates before you initiate. That's the first thing. And so Nehemiah does his homework, and after he, he makes a few initial assessments, he takes another step, and that is he, I told you this was cheesy, he communicates. You investigate, then you communicate. Now, we learn so much from Nehemiah about how we communicate. Down in verse 17 of Nehemiah chapter Two, Nehemiah says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer, he says, no longer be in disgrace. Now, a couple of important things we learn about how we communicate is that we communicate from a point of concern. You might recall last week, we said that the greatest vision grows out of a concern. God begins to put in our hearts what could be and what should be. And this point of concern then leads toward a solution. For Nehemiah, the point of concern where the walls were down, the solution was, I'm going to come and I'm going to lead this project where we're going to rebuild the walls around the city. Now we learn something else about communication and it's this and we'll put it up on the screen. Our greatest visions begin with a concern and lead to a solution. Think about in the life of our own church. That is so true. Our greatest visions begin with a concern and lead to a solution. So a number of years ago some people were looking out at our community and they begin to hear stories about how there were some parents that didn't have the needed resources they need to help their kids get ready for school. These parents would imagine their children not having backpacks, not having enough school supplies. That's the point of concern. 
And the solution was we as a church would come together and, and we would have some volunteers that would be thinking all year about, about the beginning of a school year. And we, we had uh, some folks who were, who were buying school supplies and getting donations from some of us and, and, and buying backpacks. And from that concern came the solution we call school store. And amazingly, there have been years when we've given over a thousand kids backpacks. Now, let me tell you a story about how vision kind of has a ripple effect. You start helping people, and it just kind of ripples out from there. A couple of Wednesday nights ago, I was up at church, and, and somebody said, well, we want to talk to the preacher. Sometimes that can be good. Sometimes that can be bad. And so I sheepishly said, well, yes, that would uh, be me. You sure you don't want to talk to the elders, by the way? Nuh-uh. And, and so anyway, they, they said, sure, no, we want to talk to the preacher. I said, okay, okay. And then this guy handed me an envelope. And, and I said, what is this? He said, well, this is a, a donation to College Hills. I work for an organization, and every quarter, if the bottom line has been good, we take some of those profits and we give those to organizations, churches, or nonprofits in our community. And he said, let me tell you why I'm giving you this contribution. He said, over 10 years ago, we moved to the area. He's a Hispanic gentleman. He said, I moved to the area, and we didn't have the resources to help our kids start school. And we heard about this thing called school store. And we came to College Hills and we got in line, we stood in line and some nice people gave us backpacks for our kids and gave us school supplies and got some clothes for our kids. And he said, I will always be grateful for that. And he said a month or two later, I was having a difficult time. I didn't have a job yet. And he said, I didn't have the money to pay for for our utilities and again I heard about College Hills and I came and some wonderful women met with me and heard about the need and they paid our utilities for a couple of months and I'll never forget that he said now I've got a job and and I live in a nice place and I am able to work for this company down in Murfreesboro Murfreesboro and, and when our boss said here's a check find a good worthy organization to bless he said you know who the first people I thought of were I thought of College Hills and he handed us a check for over $600. It's beautiful, isn't it, when a, when a vision is in our heart, it's, it's a concern, it leads to a solution, and there's kind of a, a ripple effect that moves out from that. But here's another thing about, about communicating our vision. For a vision you see to be powerful, it needs to be visual. Visions are visual. I know that sounds redundant, but but we often forget that. And so, as Nehemiah was speaking to some folks, he said, you see the trouble we are in. Think about that statement. You see the trouble we are in. Nehemiah just got there, but as this good leader, he identifies with the people. This wasn't just about them. This was about us. And so Nehemiah said, you see, how, how could they see it? Just look at the walls. The walls are down. That doesn't bring God glory. And so they began to visualize, they began to see what needed to be done. And and now we sometimes, we sense this concern and and we want to reach out and bless and and find a solution. But, But sometimes it's not a physical thing like it was with these walls. And so we have to help people see in their mind's eye. And when people begin to see Anything is possible. One of the greatest examples of this is Walt Disney. 
Walt Disney was one of the greatest visionaries of all time. I mean, because of his leadership and his vision, animation went to new heights. Um, Mickey Mouse was developed. Disneyland occurred. And as a result of his vision, Disney World was built and developed. I'm told that Disney World is 43 square miles. And a lot of you know this better than me because you've been there a lot of times and you've, you've walked all, probably all 43 of those square miles. You know that Disney World is this, twice the size of the island of Manhattan. Here's something you may not know. Walt Disney got cancer toward the end of his life. And though he imagined and dreamed, was involved in all, you know, designing um, Disney World, when those gates opened, he had already passed away and he wasn't able to go in. They had this big celebration and they asked Mrs. Disney to say something. And before she spoke, the person who introduced her said, I only wish Walt Disney could have seen this. And she got up and spoke two words. She looked at that crowd and she said, he did. Because he saw it, and because of his leadership, he was able to help other people see it. This amazing thing exists today. It became a reality. And so we need to investigate. We need to communicate. And here's the third word. You can very easily remember it. We need to motivate. Now, Nehemiah said, as we mentioned a moment ago, see the trouble we are in. And so I think Nehemiah does some things that would have been incredibly motivational to the people. And you know as well as I, I mean, any leader knows that people are discouraged and people can get distracted. And so one of the, 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 the tasks of a leader is to keep the people motivated. Not some kind of a, a cheesy, positive thinking kind of way, but, but helping people to remember what the mission is, what the vision is, and also help people to understand that, that God is in this. I mean, we're a church, for crying out loud. We believe in the power of God, right? We believe that God hears our prayers and answers prayers. And so I love what, what he does next. He says next, notice this, it's on the screen. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God and what the king said to them, said to me. What does he tell the people as he's trying to motivate them to be involved in this project? He says God is in this. He told the story about how, how God began to work in his heart. He gave him this, this concern. And he was looking forward to having the opportunity to, to talk with the king about it. But for four months, four long months, he prayed and fasted. And no doubt he had gone over what he was going to say to the king many times before. And then amazingly, God begins to work in the heart of the king. God opens his heart. And he asked the king if he could go, and the king says yes. And as Nehemiah reflects on that, he says, it's the hand of of my God that's on, on me. Remember, we've defined vision as this divinely given picture of what could be and should be. And so as we think about vision, this is something that God, God is in. This is something that, that God brings to us. And he shares this with the people. By the way, all God-ordained visions are shared visions. No one goes it alone. And so as, as Nehemiah shares the vision, notice how the people respond. Here's what they say. Let us start rebuilding. 
So they began this good work. And at this point, you might think to yourself, well, it's going to be smooth sledding from this point forward. It's going to be easy peasy from this moment on. I mean, you know, they're going to start building this wall and everybody's going to be excited about it and everybody's going to want to be in on it. But you know, since you've read a little bit in the book of Nehemiah, that's not exactly how it happens. As soon as they said, let's start rebuilding, there was a little bit of opposition. Here's the thing. Whenever anyone says, I will arise and build, Satan says, I will arise and oppose. That's exactly what happened. And so we have these three characters that we'll hear about in just a moment who came on and, and they were in opposition. Here's what I know. Satan does not like unified, focused churches. Satan does not like ministries that are community-impacting ministries. Satan does not like it when a church gets this clear vision from God and begins to live into that reality. Oh, he doesn't like it at all. And, and Satan did not like the fact that this key leader, Nehemiah, came on the scene and the people of God were getting excited about rebuilding the wall. And so Sanballat, the, the Hananite, Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arab, they hear about Nehemiah, and the text says they began to mock and ridicule the people and their efforts. And Nehemiah, he does something, and he says something that's important. Here's what he does. He stands up to those who are in opposition to the vision. He stands up to them. God has been working in his heart. God has given them this vision. He has communicated this to the people. The people are excited about it. Now there's some folks who are opposing this, and he stands up to them. And the other thing that, that Nehemiah does is, I, I like what he says. Notice the next verse. He says, the God of heaven will give us success. I love the fact that all through the book of Nehemiah, it's very God-centered and, and God-focused. Nehemiah is praying and fasting, and he's all the time talking about God and talking about how that the Lord will be with him. God will give us success, he says. Now, he's speaking to these three who are opposed, these three who are ridiculing them. And then he goes on to say, we are his, we his servants. We'll start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. How did he motivate the people? He told them that God is in this. He kept, kept reminding them that God is for them. Friends, if God is for us, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, who can be against us? And so we need to investigate and, and communicate and motivate and now finally it's time to initiate and delegate and this brings us to nehemiah chapter three now i want to warn you ahead of time nehemiah chapter three it's not romans eight it's not first corinthians 15 it's not matthew five and seven i want to tell you that nehemiah chapter three is about as exciting as watching paint dry i mean it is not one of those chapters in the bible that, that you just get really excited about because it's a, it's a bunch of names and it's a list, it's people. And yet if we read it closely enough, we learn something about how we initiate and delegate. We'll learn something about, I think, the organizational genius of Nehemiah. We'll learn something about how, first of all, leaders set 
the example. Notice the first person who's mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3. His name is Eliashib. Who is this? Eliashib is the high priest. And then the second people that are mentioned right alongside of Eliashib are the priests. And so one of the things I think by mentioning them first and talking about the part of the wall they would be building, I think what Nehemiah is telling us is that leadership is important. Leadership sets the tone. Leadership sets the pace. You see, leaders shouldn't ask their, something of their people they're not willing to do. And so when leaders ask their people to give deeply and generously financially, guess what leaders ought to be doing? Giving deeply and financially, right? Deeply and generously. When leaders ask their people to get engaged, to, to get in a life group, and to, and to be involved in whatever, then guess what leaders need to do? One of the things we learn in Nehemiah chapter 3 is we see that leaders set the tone. I don't want to ask people to do something I'm not willing to do, but here's something else we learn. And it's that God uses all kinds of people. If you look down in verse 8 of Nehemiah chapter 3, he used goldsmiths to help build the wall, and he used perfumers. And then you read on down uh, in, chapter, in verse 12 of chapter 3, and you'll see that here's a father who's rebuilding part of the wall. And evidently, this father probably didn't have any sons. So what did he do? He said to his daughters, we're going to build the wall. And here's this dad and his daughters who are building part of the wall. Isn't that wonderful? He didn't just use, you know, masons and carpenters. Oh, no, Nehemiah got all kinds of people involved in the project. It, it, we need all kinds of people in a church. And I think what this ultimately teaches us is that a group of people working together can do far more than just one or two can. As you read through the section, if you underline the phrase next to him or next to them or after them, you'll underline that kind of phrase something like 28 times. That is saying they were working together. They were all doing their part of the wall, and together they were going to accomplish this beautiful thing. I can think of tons of examples of this in a church. Next Sunday morning, as you'll hear, is our vision offering. Our goal is always big. Our goal next Sunday is, I think, $87,500. Is that number right? I said 75000 in first service, but I quickly corrected. I might, I'll let you know. It's $87,500. I, I, I got to tell you, I I can't, I can't give that. I just can't. I mean, I guess I could talk my whole future. I mean, I, but I, I, I can't do that. Probably few of us can. But you know what? When we come together, each doing our part, it's amazing what can, can occur. It's amazing the good we can accomplish. That's the beauty of a church. It's when men and women come together with one focus and one vision, oh, it's, a, it's amazing. We, we can do things like, like help a thousand kids with backpacks. We can do things like help hundreds of, of people um, uh, who, who are involved in our, in our school store, um, uh, our, our uh, Head Start Christmas ministry, and, and the list goes on and on. When God's people come together, we can do far more together than we can individually. And so I began today by asking the question, why do we do what we do. There's a famous story about three bricklayers. After the great fire in uh, 1666 of uh, this beautiful, beautiful um, 
church you see right here, St. Paul's Cathedral. I've, I've had the opportunity to be there, and it is a beautiful structure. I, I've been in London two or three times, and I, every time I've had the opportunity to go, I love to just see the beautiful architecture, particularly in churches. Well, this church in 1666 was destroyed, totally destroyed, by this great fire. And the noted architect at the time, Christopher Wren, was asked to rebuild this structure. And he tells the story about asking three different uh, men who were working on that building a similar question. He went up to these, these three men, and he says to the first man, what, what are you doing? And the first man said, well, I'm a, I'm a bricklayer, and I'm working hard laying bricks to feed my family. The second person said, I'm, I'm a builder, and I'm building a wall. But the third bricklayer, when he was asked the question, so what are you doing? He replied with a, a gleam in his eye. He said, I'm, I'm a cathedral builder, and I'm building a great cathedral for the glory of God. Why is it that we do what we do? Regardless of what we do, we're doing it for the glory of God. That's the that's the motivation behind all that we do.